so thankful for the privilege to worship you and to enjoy you. God, thank you that you marked out the week where we can come together once a week and be reminded of the infinite glory of who you are. God, thank you for singing that we can do that by song. Thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in creation where we can see something of your glory. And thank you, God, for your word where we can open it up and know you more specifically. And so, God, ready our hearts and minds to receive your word, that we might be changed by it for the infinite praise of your everlasting glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, except the kiddos, you're not allowed to sit. You're allowed to run to the rear. If you want to run, you don't have to run. You can walk. Uh, as they go to the back, uh, let me uh, just remind those of you that didn't, weren't here at the beginning, didn't hear the uh, announcement for the men's retreat. Uh, men's retreat's coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, I think the information is on your uh, bulletin there. You can sign up there. You can also sign up uh, online. It's a great opportunity to, to develop relationships in the life of the church. So if you think my sermon on relationships is not that good, well, listen, there's going to get even better at the men's retreat. So that's where you should go. Uh, if you think my, my sermon is good on relationships, it'll only get better at the men's retreat. You should go there. Um, so make sure and uh, create some priority for that time. It's on a Friday and a Saturday. And then also, if you're interested in membership, we'll talk a little bit about that in the sermon. Uh, that's coming up in a couple weeks on the 1st of October. If you have any questions about that, let me or someone else that you've seen up here know about that. And we'd be glad to speak to you about that. Uh, well, in 2015, 2015, a comedian by the name of Aziz Ansari, some of you know him from uh, Parks and Rec, he wrote this book called Modern Romance. Uh, And in this book, he's trying to basically understand the kind of modern problems that we find ourselves in today. Kind of relationships seem to be unique. There seem to be some unique problems. And he's trying to understand it. And he gives a lot of attention to how we make choices. For instance, he says, quote, whether it's where I'm eating, whether where I'm traveling or something I'm buying, I feel compelled to do a lot of research to make sure I'm getting the best at times, though. This I need to be the best, this I need the best can be debilitating. He goes on to say that the world is available to us, but that may be the problem. He notes that if you own a smartphone, you're carrying around a 24-7 singles bar in your pocket. And so with so many options and the expectation to only have the met, uh, only have the best, we easily move in and out of relationships. Never actually committing. We are no longer the generation, he says, of the good enough marriage. We are now looking for soulmates. And even after we find our soulmates, if we start feeling unhappy, we get divorced. He goes on to write that marriage was, used to be an economic institution in which you were given partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend. My trusted confidant, my passionate lover to boot. And we live twice as long, so we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, give me transcendence and mystery and awe, all in one. Give me predictability, give me surprise. Unquote. And so if you're listening closely to that quote there, you'll note that he uses a word, one word very frequently, me. In particular, give me in relation to our expectations in relationships. So it seems the world's push towards consumerism has found its way into our most meaningful of relationships. 
And so Pastor Tim Keller makes the same observations in he and his wife's book, The Meaning of Marriage, where he writes, instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedom and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage has been redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. Marriage, he says, used to be about us, but now it's about me. But ironically, this newer view of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses in a way that more traditional understandings never did. And it leaves us trapped between both unrealistic longings for and terrible fears about marriage. Final quote, he says, Keller goes on to write, To conduct a me marriage requires two completely well-adjusted, happy individuals with very little in the way of emotional neediness of their own or character flaws that they need to work a lot on. But the problem is, he says, there's almost no one out there like that to marry. And so simply put, people today, he says, people today are asking far too much in the marriage partner. And so, friends, today we're not going to be just talking about marriage. Today we're going to be talking about relationships in general. And so we are doing this as the last installment of this brief series we're calling Do Not Conform, where we're trying to evaluate the messages of the world and the ways that Christians can very subtly conform to the agenda of the world in ways that we don't realize. And we've noted a couple weeks ago that the message that the world is trying to conform us to is the centering of ourselves and our own passions as the guiding principle for life, uh, as is illustrated by this cartoon. See it there? Almost come. No. There it is. All right. See, where's the world on the outside? There's me in the middle. What does it say? As a matter of fact, the world does revolve around me. Sort of a good illustration of what we're seeing. And this idea, I think, is directly opposed to God's purpose in the world, which is to magnify his glory and to create a people that are about that same agenda of magnifying his glory. And so at the end of the day, we find ourselves in two stories. Everybody on planet Earth, you can take that down. Uh, Everybody on planet Earth, uh, they don't need to be reminded of it enough of this, Two people, two kinds of stories that every person on planet Earth is trying to be oriented by. There's the me-centered worldview and the God-centered worldview. And to be clear, that me-centered worldview can still believe in God. God just becomes whatever sort of you need him to be in order to serve those passions. Uh, Those commands of his are sort of uh, obeyed or disobeyed as you see them as convenient. And when when he doesn't meet your expectations, you can sort of walk away from God. So you can still have a me-centered worldview, and still believe in God. And last week we talked about how money, uh, we are being conformed in ways of the world in the relation to our money and how uh, we are being taught to use our money for ourselves and our own passions and pleasures instead of being rich towards God. But today, as I mentioned, we're going to see that relationships, we're going to be talking about relationships, and what we're going to see is we must not see each other as products to consume for our own pleasure. But instead, we should see one another as persons to love. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see that from two points today. We'll do like we've been doing, kind of how the world sees relationships and love in those relationships, and then how we should see them in more heavenly relationships, the ways that God would have us to love. So we'll be doing that in two different texts. The first text we'll explore is in Luke chapter 6, verse 32 to 34. Luke 6, 32 to 34. Luke is a New Testament book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's a third book in the New Testament. You'll find it kind of moving to the right of the Bible. You'll find it there. 
Uh, And this is what that verse says. This is Jesus speaking in what is called the Sermon on the Plain, which is another sermon similar to this Sermon on the Mount. We're picking it up midstream. This is what he says. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now we're going to pay attention to, in particular, verses 32, 33, and 34 there, where Jesus is focusing there on worldly love, how it loves. He asks three and answers three questions with just trying to make, he's doing that to make one simple point. So look at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Verse 34, if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? So the first thing that I want you to notice in that passage is Jesus is definitely interested in receiving a benefit in relationships. In loving, he's definitely interested in us receiving some kind of a benefit in relationship. But the way that that comes about is far different in the Christian faith and his understanding of what love is. Now, as I mentioned, we're picking up this passage in the middle of a sermon that is aimed at trying to help people understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. And again, he says, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those that do good to you, if you lend to those that pay you back, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. So Jesus exposes the way that the world loves. And it should be as no surprise to us by now that we find that the way that the world loves is by Thinking about me, it's centered on me and what I get out of it. So Jesus says that even sinners or those outside of the kingdom, even they love uh, in a way that will have people to love them back. Even they will do good to those of whom they know will do good to them back. Even they will lend money to those of whom they know will pay them back. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is love like that is very natural. It's very natural. There is nothing inherently beautiful. Nothing meaningful about relationships like that. Those relationships, those kinds of relationships, they're easy to get into, they're easy to get out of, and they're easy to understand. And Jesus is saying here that relationships like that that are based primarily on what you get out of it are not really anything special. Not distinctly Christian in particular. There's no meaningful benefit there. And me-centered relationships then are sort of like white office walls dry oatmeal, plain khakis, and Ford Tauruses, right? I mean, they're just sort of plain. They're just sort of regular, right? If you guys have seen those commercials, have you all seen the, those Mercedes commercials, you know, where the, the, the red Mercedes comes driving through the neighborhood and the, and the picture slows down and everybody stares at the Mercedes as it goes by? Like, nobody's doing that with Ford Tauruses, right? They just for it. It's a good car, it's a plain, but it's just sort of a regular old car, right? And Jesus is saying that, like, Love like that is sort of based on what I get out of it. It's sort of like that. It's plain. It's kind of ordinary. There's nothing beautiful, nothing inspirational, nothing eternally beneficial about plain toast, dry oatmeal, and Ford Tauruses. And if you have a Ford Taurus, be thankful. They're good cars, I'm sure. I've never owned one. 
But this is what Jesus is trying to drive at this. Jesus is trying to say that relationships that are like that, that are based primarily on what I get out of it, that's sort of what they're like. They're just ordinary. So when we love for the main purpose of receiving, then we can be sure that our relationships will be about as beneficial as a ballpoint pen. Ballpoint pens are good. Ballpoint pens are helpful. We like ballpoint pens. We use ballpoint. You're using one right now, maybe. Even in this moment, you're using them. So if we lose a a pen, we find another one. It's not hard, right? Nobody sees a pen on the side of the street, goes, runs, and picks up the pen and says, my goodness, I have found a pen. This will change my life forever, right? Nobody does that with pens. Why? Because they're common. Are they useful? Of course they're useful. But they're common. And so are relationships that are based on what I get out of it. Me receiving, not primarily giving, but just receiving. They're common, they're ordinary, they're explainable. Do they have benefit? Of course they do. Of course they do. It's better to have five ballpoint pens than to have no pens at all. But if your life is going to have meaningful relationships, it's got to be something more than that. And those common ideas. And certainly, as we look at the gospel, there's a, certain, a different orientation about relationships. And so life changes when you find out that loving relationships that are out of the ordinary, those are the ones that actually are the most meaningful and beneficial. Because remember, Jesus is driving at a benefit here. And so let's take some time to consider the way that we approach relationships like this. So in our relationships, how is it we conform Uh, to the kind of worldly love that is primarily evaluating or initiating relationships based off of primarily what we get out of it. I'm going to refer to this again as kind of common, ordinary, natural loves. It's ordinary. That's what Jesus seems to be thinking of it. Even sinners, even people that have not been changed by the grace of God, even they have relationships like that. So what are some of the ways that our relationships are naturally centered on ourselves? Now, let me say this from the very beginning. Guys, that having kinds of relationship like these are not wrong. They're nothing wrong in and of themselves. It's just that consistently, uh, if our relationships are consistently defined in this way, that's when it becomes a problem. So when you constantly want to be around people, for instance, that you like and who like you, that's natural. That's ordinary. If you're around people constantly who are in the same stage of life as you, where most of your relationships have the same background as you, Similar interests or hobbies as you. They have the same interests or dislikes as you. Uh, they, this is the sort of misery love company idea or the kind of click syndrome. So you consistently are developing relationships with people that have the same experiences as you. And so most all of your friendships are based on convenience or the comfort that they can provide you. You don't really have to work at them, in other words. Or you spend time with people that... Uh, could improve your image or improve your social or your work status. These kinds of relationships are very explainable. We might call them the gathering of the worthy. So they're worthy because in your network, they have relation, those relationships in some way uh, can serve your interests. And again, those things are not wrong in and of themselves. I like to talk college football. I like to be around guys that talk about college football. There's nothing wrong with that. But if all I'm doing is spending time with guys that talk about college football, that's a problem. It's a problem. My wife likes to be around other moms and kind of learn from other moms, spend time with other moms. That's not only, that's not only okay, it's probably wise of her to do that. But if that's the only people that she's spending her time with, that's when it becomes a problem or primarily spending them in that way. And so, in other words, what kind of benefit, I think Jesus would say to us, are those kinds of relationships to you? 
Even sinners love like that. And by that, I think Jesus is telling us that we should not settle for natural relationships, but supernatural relationships that are grounded in beautiful, inexplicable, powerful love. And so let's dig in a bit more, shall we? Let's think about the ways that we in the church can conform to these world relationships, uh, worldly relationships with natural loves. How do we in the church do this? Well, I think one way is, is we do this when the main reason we choose a church is based off of what the church can do for me. So my, it conforms to my style of music or my style of preaching or my style of praying or my style of doing ministry in general, whatever the case may be. I know those, I spoke to someone not long ago that left one Baptist church to go to another Baptist church because that other Baptist church wasn't Baptist enough. I don't even know what that means. It was just strange. So when the clarity of the gospel and the commonality of faithful doctrine, when those things take second tier to our likes and dislikes, we are conforming to the world and its pattern of easy, self-centered loves. We conform to the world and we begin to operate as consumeristic Christians. And that doesn't mean, again, that those personal preferences are unimportant. I'm not saying that at all. But it does mean that personal preferences should never be primary for the Christian. Bruce Milne, I think, writes it so well in his book, Life Together. It's a tiny little book. It's out of print, but if you can find it, go and read it. It's so good. He writes this. He says, quote, Is this not one of the reasons why the non-Christian finds us so often unattractive and explainable? We appear simply as another social group, social club, which attracts folks of a certain type. We are the goodies who naturally like each other and respect each other. We are drawn together simply by common interest and outlook. Our mutual attraction is simply, on a different level, the same as that of the sailing club, the working men's club, the gingerbread group, or whatever. Ever heard of a gingerbread group? Anyway, so um, he goes on to say, it is a love for the worthy. It is a love for equals. And so they can explain us and leave us alone. But But it is when the love which we express begins to stoop. When we really begin to love those who are unworthy, those who have failed, those who reject our standards, those to whom we are not naturally attracted, it is then that the non-Christian begins to take notice, unquote. And I know this hurts for us to hear. It's difficult for me to think. I think he's just describing me in some ways. So let's, let's keep going in this. This is good for us. It's hard, but this is good for us to consider. What are some of the other ways that we in the church conform to more natural loves, not gospel-oriented loves? Well, I think another way we, we in the church do this is when we expect to only really be poured into, but we actually don't want to take the time to pour into others, especially those that are hard or difficult to, or, or different than us. Or when we are only willing to serve the church in the areas that we have interest or gifts in. Or we are not even interested in serving the church at all. When we are uninterested in welcoming visitors or create new relationships because they might require more uh, responsibility or they might move. When our schedules and our dinner tables are not are largely or are largely open for those of whom we like a lot. Uh, Those whose lives are not too messy. Or the married people for you, married people in the room, when your kindness towards your spouse largely appears when you want something from them. Of what benefit are these kinds of relationships to you, Jesus says. Even sinners have relationships like that. 
And so if this constitutes most of your relationships and the kinds of relationships that you are seeking out, those relationships are not necessarily wrong. But by themselves, they miss out on the greater benefit that Christ is calling us to. So I, I think I was thinking about this week when we planted this church. At the very beginning, we had to go to a training. And in the beginning of that training, we were told to choose a target group to help start our church. So the idea was, is like, find some other group of people that have some other interest and sort of use that to start a church. So they had us go through that exercise, and Joe and I were sitting in this meeting, and we just didn't do it. So we kindly refused to do the exercise. And the trainer comes by and notices we're not doing anything, and he asks us why we are not kind of identifying our target group, and we just told him that, like, we're not going to do that. We're going to target anybody that speaks English in Northwest D.C. and maybe a few that aren't, that don't speak English. Maybe a few of them too. Because that seemed to be what Jesus was doing. He had no sort of other common interest. So what they were trying to do is get us to kind of get all the motorcyclers, you know, together and then come and make a church out of it. You know, they already have this common interest. Or uh, try and identify some other group, you know, try to get a bunch of families, you know, get the families, make that like the family church, get that there. They already have an interest in families. Get all the college students, make it a college church, all the college students, get them in there because they already have that college ministry interest. Or get all the middle class white people that like Chris Tomlin music, start a church there, that way, right? Or you can get the middle class white people that like John Piper and reformed preaching and expository preaching. You get those guys, start a church with them, right? And so we're all tempted towards those particular things. But friends, this is not the way of the gospel. It's not the way of the gospel. We want, when we started this church, we still strive to this day. When we fail, we fail. But the thing that we're striving at, more than anything else, is that Christ would be attractive. And that Christ and the beauty of Christ in you would be the thing that people say, I want to be part of that church. Which would attract all kinds of people, whether you have all kinds of crazy interests or not. That's what it seems to be what Jesus is driving us to in terms of benefit. And so we're not going to try to start a church that has target groups as a, as a way of sort of thinking. We're, we're going to go out and try to work against consumeristic Christianity that builds relationships on the shifting sand of selfish love. And so when I preach, I am not going to put my sermons together to think, how is it I can preach in such a, such a way as to make all of you happy? Right? That's a terrible way to approach preaching. First off, that's an impossible mission. I can't possibly say to 150 people everything that's going to make everybody okay. And if I do, it's probably going to be popcorn and slushies and it won't help anybody, right? We've got to say things. I'm going to preach in such a way as to try to be faithful and say what's true. Whether you like it or not is sort of beyond me. I'm going to try to entrust that to the Lord. When we do music, when we do counseling, when we do children's ministry or evangelism, we are not going to ask what's the best way we can do this to get more people to like us. We're not going to do ministry that way. We're not going to do the mission. We're going to try to be faithful to what God has called us to in the way that he's called us to it. We're going to leave the results to God. Leave the results to him. See, Jesus' love was different. His relationships were unexplainable in a way. It was otherworldly, we could say. His approach to relationships was far deeper than I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And if we are in Christ, our relationship should be different as well. And so let's take the time to think about that. So far, what we've said is don't conform to the way of the world whose relationships are built primarily on what I get out of it. That's what our relationship should not primarily be looking like or marked by. So we need to ask the next question, right? What should they look like? That's the, the, that's the way that we ought not conform to the patterns of the world. How do we conform to the pattern of the world to come? 
So that's the second point. We're going to call it heavenly relationships. We looked before at worldly relationships. Let's now consider heavenly relationships. Flip over to John 13. It's going to be the next book over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 13. This is the occasion Jesus has just finished washing the feet of the disciples. The cross is very much in view at this point. John chapter 13, verse 34. Here's what Jesus says. This is going to be the way that's going to orient us towards the relationship that Christ would have us to. The meaningful loves. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved one another. Again, let me read that first part again. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, in order for us to understand that passage, we have to understand what Jesus means by love there, right? Love is another one of those words that's been hijacked by the world that we can misconstrue. So when Jesus says love, what does he mean exactly? What love is he describing? What's he talking about? Well, thankfully, we've got a very clear passage in the Bible, another passage that you can stay where you're at, you'll see it on the screen behind me, that describes what love is. So this is going to help us understand how we ought to love. 1 John 4, verse 10 and 11. It's a verse we quote around here a lot. Here it is. It says, first off, by the way, this is the context here, back up in verse 7. You'll note this is the context of God is love. Y'all have heard that before. God is love. Well, here it is. Love then gets defined. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Here it comes. Here's the definition. This is what Christ, when he says love one another, this is what the context is with the definition, I think, is. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that means wrath quencher, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so love here, friends, is defined very simply by grace. Grace. Grace means to receive life when you deserve death. That's what love is. See, we, we deserve death. And yet in Christ, for those of us who believe, we now have life, even though we did not first love God. He first loved us. So Christ, listen, so important, Christ graciously took in our place, He stood in our place on the cross, And took our penalty upon himself so that by his death, we who believe might come to live in the resurrection. And God says in that is love. That's what love is. Love initiates to the unworthy. Love gives. Love is gracious. Love offers life to those who do not deserve anything but death. And so when Jesus says to love one another. Just as I have loved you. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, he means be gracious. Choose to offer life to others, even if they deserve death. First love them. Don't wait for them to first love you. And love, we should note, is not primarily an emotion. Love begins as a choice to treat others, speak to others, or relate to others in ways that they do not deserve. It's a choice to give something to others that may allow them to live and have life anew. Friends, I assure you, I assure you that Jesus was not feeling the warm and fuzzies when they nailed Him to a tree. 
And yet that is the definition of love. Love is not primarily an emotion. It does involve emotion. It should involve emotions. But it's first a decision to be gracious to others so that they might have joy. They may have life no matter who they are. And because Christ loved us, or in Christ like this, He began in us a relationship, friends, that is as deep as the oceans. That's definition of what a real relationship is. A relationship that is far deeper than the thin and veneer loves that this world is trying to get us to conform to. And so the cross of Christ shows us what love in relationships is supposed to look like. It's just as Jesus says, relationships are built on giving, not primarily receiving. Giving, in particular, grace. Giving to all types of people, no matter what they may have done, or no matter what they might can do for us or not do for us. And when we love like that, pursue one another like that, just as our master pursued us, then the world takes notice. And then, I think Jesus would tell us, then we benefit. Then we really benefit. Because sinners don't love like that. It's not common. It's not normal. It's not natural. And so we're to love, Jesus says, just as he loved us. And there we find what heavenly relationships look like. And so let's get a bit more specific, shall we? Exactly how did Jesus love us? Well, for starters, he loved his enemies. He loved us. Right? Christ died for us while we were yet enemies. He never returned, Jesus did. He never returned revile for revile. He did not threaten when he was chastised. He was compassionate towards the poor, towards the hurting, and towards the disenfranchised. He loved others by not submitting to man-made cultural norms that were popular in his day. So in that way, Christ was loving by, by being counter-cultural. Christ's love was sacrificial. He loved by being a shepherd to those who didn't have one, no matter who they were. He was patient and he was steadfast, even when the people weren't that way towards him. He prayed for the joy of his disciples. This is, this is amazing to me. I've been stewing on this for about a month. Jesus was loving to his disciples and and prayed for their joy just after he noted their soon departure from him. Pretty amazing. He washed the feet of not only his disciples, he washed the feet of Judas. The one that would betray him. He loved others by rebuking them and correcting them in their thinking and their living. He was willing to be inconvenienced. He loved by submitting to the will of his father. And he was indiscriminate into whom he chose, of whom he chose to give that love to, to show that grace to. He was indiscriminate. So he served both the Greek and the Jew, the healthy and the sick, the rich and the poor, men and women, the theologically trained and the illiterate, the culturally accepted and the culturally rejected. Uh, adults and children, singles and married, the messy and the put together, the sinners and the sinned against. And why did he do all of this? Why did he love like this? Two reasons. First, he loved like this because he wanted his heavenly father to be glorified. And the second reason was because he wanted his neighbors to enter into that glory. Maybe a simple way of saying that is, why did Jesus love like this? Because he loved God and his neighbor. And in that is the fulfillment of the law. And that's the way Jesus loved And so I wonder what your relationships would be like if you loved in this way. 
What kind of relationships might you have if you chose to first offer grace instead of waiting for others to offer you what you want or need? What might your marriage be like if instead of waiting for your spouse to get it right, you loved as Jesus loved you and you were consistently gracious? What might your relationship to your children be like if you loved them the same way that Jesus loved you when you disobeyed? What might your relationship be like to your friends, to your family, or to your church family if instead of rehearsing their failures or waiting for them to love you in the way that you desire, you go to them and choose to offer them grace, the grace of life and love and truth? This is a heavenly love, and this is the benefit that Jesus wants us to have in relationships. This is the way relationships are meant to be formed. These are the kinds of relationships that we were made to have. Relationships not centered on our preferences and what we get out of it, but relationships that begin by us first loving others in the same way that Jesus loved us. Relationships built on the grace of God, indiscriminate, countercultural, and generous, and yes, guess what else? Hard difficult, uncomfortable, but in the end, beautiful. Now, I already know what most of you are thinking, or at least some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Nathan, this is way too hard to love like this. Way too hard. Uh, I think that's one reason why even sinners will do the other kinds of relationships, and why they don't do this kind. So some of you are thinking, this is way too hard to love like this. And I think when I, if I say that, if that's you, I, I think you're starting to get it. And note that I said starting to get it because you haven't quite got it. If you are starting to understand that loving like this, having relations like this is hard, you've not quite gotten it because it's not just hard, folks. It's impossible. It's impossible to love like this consistently. This kind of love in relationships is not just hard, it's impossible. In our own strength, we cannot do this. We cannot be oriented by giving more than receiving on our own, forgiving as we have been forgiven. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot love the unworthy day after day in our own strength. We cannot love our enemies. We cannot turn our other cheek. We can't walk the extra mile. We cannot threaten or return revile for revile by simply trying harder. It won't work. But we then need to ask the question, well, what will work? Well, what will work, beloved, is if this love is fueled not by the natural, but by the supernatural, then it becomes possible. With man, this is impossible. With God, what? All things are possible. See, God knows that he cannot, that we cannot love like this and have relationships like this by simply telling us to do it. He knows that. He knows he can't just tell us, here's the example of Jesus, now go do it. He knows that. I think we sometimes, it's a lot of sermons sort of stop right here in the sermon and they go on and tell you to get out there and love like Jesus. And sometimes we just get exhausted and we give up. And this is the second part of the loving relationships that we need to understand. See, God knows that we cannot do it by just telling us to do it. See, Jesus not only then provides us the example of love, you need to understand that Jesus also provides us with the power to do it. So important. See, Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive, what's the word there? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. See, the Holy Spirit is often called the Spirit of Christ. Why? 
Because as Jesus says in John 16, he, the spirit, takes all that is Jesus's and declares it to those that are that believe. So in that way, then Jesus is both our example and his spirit is our power to live this out. So we do not trust ourselves to be gracious and love like this and form relationships like this. We trust God to do this. We trust God to be at work in us, to will and to work for his good pleasure and for our everlasting enjoyment. So don't walk out of here today thinking I need to try harder and love a bunch of people that are not like me in ways that are not like it because you're going to just tire and give up. But if you bathe yourself in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him to enable you to move these ways, you can do this. See, Christ, you should know, beloved, Christ has completed the work. It's your responsibility to live inside of that work. Our relationships grow as we learn to live inside of our relationship with Christ. This is why Jesus said to wait before they go to be his witnesses for the power of the spirit to come upon them. This is where the power is. We look to God. So we have shared, we who are in Christ, we share in Christ's saving work. And so we have died to those elemental me-centered loves in Christ on the cross. They got killed there. We have been raised to a new and holy life in Christ as he was raised from the dead on a third day. And we will share in Christ's everlasting glory in his soon return. And all of these things have been sealed for those of us who are in Christ and they cannot be taken away. And so even when we get it wrong, and we get it wrong, and I get it wrong, listen, in Christ, we're still all right. Isn't that good to know? That's where we have to live, inside of that truth of who we are in Christ. And that's where we go to get not only the example of how to build loving relationships, it's also the place we go to get the power to live them out. So if we are going to love just as Christ loved us and pursue the unworthy, to develop relationships that are varied and marked by grace, we must saturate ourselves in the grace of Christ. Saturate ourselves. He, Christ, is our pattern and His Spirit is our power. Remember what we said, guys, a couple weeks ago when Paul wrote in Romans 12, do not conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And remember, we, we then asked the question, what is the will of God? Remember 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, where the will of God is your sanctification. Well, how is it we get thank- sanctified? John seventeen seventeen by the word of God how we're renewed and so if christ friend is just a hobby to you or just a personal inspiration that you use to kind of get what you really want then these commands to love will not work for you because they're too hard you're tired and you'll give up but if you really have been born again by the love of christ been born again by the love of christ and been transformed and are being transformed by his love then you'll be patient and you'll bathe yourself in the love of Christ day after day. And listen, you're going to find yourself loving others in the same way that Jesus loved you. It could be so small and indiscriminate, but it'll happen slowly. Relationships that will be formed uh, in ways that you'll find yourself loving people uh, that are hard, that are uncomfortable, that are way out of your comfort zone. The more you give yourself to Christ, it will be hard, but it will be worth it. It will so be worth it because Christ is worth it. And so let me end our time today by giving us a few ways that we can live uh, this out together. A few ways we can trust God 
to live this kind of love and develop these kinds of relationships together. And I think this is a really timely message for us here at Restoration Church. Most of the members of this church have been here for less than three years. That's mind-boggling to me as a pastor that has been here for eight. Most of you have been here for less than three years. The members of our church have been here less than three years. Uh, And so that means a lot of the culture that we're talking about in these sermons and in our life together, the stuff we're trying to build, this grace-based, countercultural, Christ-like family love has not stewed in a lot of you long enough to really set in and change you. And the ones that have been here longer than that, well, they've been doing this for a while, and some of them are tired. Some of them are tired. Some of them have tried to pursue others and been rejected. So don't give them reason to be rejected, beloved. In other words, if you have joined this church within the last three years, you came into a church that was much easier to be a part of than, say, five years ago when we were much smaller More awkward than we already are. You think we're awkward now? We were even more awkward back then. So you came into a church that sort of had a lot of things sort of put together. And so I'm appealing to you to lean into that covenant if you've made that with us. And the covenant, and we need to lean into the covenant we've made to you. And so if all of us, if we kind of think about this, our church family as our kind of metaphorical home. If all of us were to clean the dishes and all of us were to vacuum the floors and all of us were to try and cook the food from time to time, to plant seeds, to harvest the crops and keep an eye on those crazy children of ours. If all of us do a little bit of that together, the easier it will be on us all. And the sooner our church family will be even more of a spectacle to the gospel than it already is. And let it be said that it is a spectacle in a good way to this community. So I want to encourage those of you that have already been doing this. So many of you have been loving others as Christ has loved you. You've been doing sacrificial things and loving people that are not like you and having them in your homes. Thank you to those of you that have been doing that. It does not go unnoticed by us, but most importantly, it doesn't go unnoticed by God himself. But how can we have relationships that love as Jesus loved us and be a spectacle to the world and enjoy that benefit? Here are some ways. First off, I think we need to start by examining ourselves. Take some time this week to evaluate yourselves and your expectations in your current relationships. Go back and look at Luke chapter 6, 32 to 34. It's what we looked at earlier. Go back and look at that and, and identify if in your relationships you have habits of forming new relationships that are formed like that. Are you, are you conforming to that kind of world generally? Remember, don't be hard on yourself if you're having relationships in some ways like that. It's just I'm talking about constitutionally, broadly, like that's most of what you have. Just evaluate that in light of Luke 6, 32 to 34. If you're married or you have children, evaluate the ways that you may be loving like Luke 6 says. Try to think about that. Think about your habits. What do you normally do after church is over? Do you find the same people every week and talk to them? When you are hurt by a friend or by your spouse, how do you respond? Pay attention to the places that you grumble or want certain things to change. And then evaluate if those things are personal preferences that are taking priority over gospel realities. Notice the people and the places that you're praying for. Are they always the same things? The same kind of little world that you live in? Do you find yourself praying for your enemies or your rivals? Asking God to do good to them. Distant nations, places you've never seen. Here's another one. Try and rehearse your closest friends. 
or the bulk of your friends, maybe would a better way to say that, and ask yourself this question. If they are in Christ and you are in Christ, if Christ were exposed as a fraud tomorrow, would those relationships continue without any disturbance or very little disturbance if Christ were to be exposed as a fraud? See, if so, that shows you that the glory of Christ and the beauty of his love is not really a heart or an important piece of that relationship. And so then, after evaluating yourself, if you find sin, repent where necessary. Receive the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. Enjoy his forgiveness. And then ask him to change you in these ways. Pray John 13, 34, and 35. Ask the Lord to help you love like you see happening there in 1 John 4, 10 and 11. And regularly rehearse the gospel for yourself every day and every moment. Look to Jesus Jesus as your pattern and the source of your power to live like him and to love like him. And you're going to have to do that regularly because you're going to find it hard. And don't forget to be patient. Change does not come overnight. You are how you are and what you've been through for a lot of years. And so it takes time for these things to change. But I tell you guys this over and over. When I go home today, or actually after church today, uh, I'm going to go back and look at my kids and they're going to look exactly the same. But the reality is they're changing. And so are you. And so far as you give yourself to the grace and mercy of Christ, you drink that in. But after examination, try and identify a few ways. Just write them down. Simple things. doesn't have to be big things. Simple things that you can work against in those relationships that are primarily oriented towards you. What are some ways you can orient yourself towards others? Maybe choose a few dinner dates on your calendar. Put those uh, dinner dates on your calendar and invite three or four groups of people uh, into your life, and into those meals that you just don't know. Uh, you wouldn't naturally find yourself talking to and invite them over. They might say no. They might never respond. I've had that happen to me. You think, well, gosh, that wouldn't happen to Nathan. Oh, yes, I've asked people to come. They don't even respond. It's okay. It's okay. Don't take it personally. You know, we'll find somebody else. Look, at there's plenty of people to go around. Right? Sit in a different place in church so you can meet new people. Sign up to be a greeter. For those of you that are members, sign up to be a greeter so you can meet new people. Send a text message that has a Bible verse that will encourage other people. After service is over, identify one person that you don't know and introduce yourself to them and just try to get to know them. I've got a few. So if I, you're a visitor, you're going to hear me ask these questions. I've got a few go-to things. So I'm just sharing them with all of you. All right. And so when I tell you the new person, you say, yeah, here he is. He's doing his thing. But it's just the way I get to know people. Where are you from? What brings you to the city? How would you find us here at Restoration Church? I mean, those are like the first three questions every single time. Now, some of you are going, yeah, that's exactly what he said last week. <laughs> yeah. I just try to start, try to get to know them. And then hopefully something could come out and we can just talk. If you're a member of the church, serve in the children's ministry. A lot of you are already doing that. But you want to talk about a place to love others that have little to no interest in you? That's a great place. Right? Right? Those kids could probably care less that you're there. Matter of fact, they'd like you to not be there so they can run around and go crazy. And they do even go crazy when you're even in there. What a great place to go and learn how to serve others that can't serve you back. Sign up for children's ministry. I love my kids, by the way, just for the record. And by the way, just to be clear, I understand that signing up for children, I understand that children's ministry is not for everybody. But I do think it's probably appropriate for more people than are signed up. Going back to last week, give sacrificially to the church of your money or to a gospel ministry or to the poor. Give and make it hurt a little bit. We had a guy way back 
I got time for this one. I got, we had a guy way back in the beginning that uh, he gave us a sum of money. If I told you how much it was, it'd shock you. I talked to this guy for a total of maybe three minutes, uh, max. And he said to him, I was talking to him on the phone one time after this gift. He said, I wanted to give, Nathan, because I wanted it to hurt a little bit. It's a good way to think of others and love others. Lend in a way that you can't get back. Some of you need to join a church. doesn't have to be this church. It doesn't have to be this church, but join a church. Join a church. Isolated Christianity that only dates the church without committing to her is not how Jesus loved his church. It's not also good for you. Yes, new members' classes and members' meetings can be tiresome and maybe boring on occasion, but this is sort of like family life, right? Cleaning the dishes is sort of boring, but we need to do this. And a matter of fact, that sounded really bad. Joey's going to get me on that later. So listen, members' meetings are beautiful and good, all right? They really are. My, my, yeah, this is stick to the notes, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last suggestion. This is a hard one. This is the toughest one of them all. Be willing to walk with the poor, the disenfranchised, the hurting of the sinful. Some people are scared to share their sin in our accountability groups because of what you might think of them. Don't give them reason to do that. Be the kind of people that have so rehearsed the gospel of grace that like that sinful woman that shows up to the dinner party and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. Can you think about the courage that woman needed to have to show up? But she knew she did it. Why? Because she knew that Jesus would love her. Be like that. Be like that. That you've rehearsed the gospel of grace and the beauty of Christ so much that you would invite the kinds of people that might come and entrust themselves to you and you walk with them. And don't worry about what you're going to say. I can remember back in seminary when I would hear stories like people came out and said this and people did that. I was like, oh my gosh, what would I do? I don't know what I would do. Listen, don't worry about what you're going to say. Just do a lot of listening. Most people that are hard or difficult or going through hard things, most of the time they just need someone to talk to. Just someone to listen to them. Someone to pray with them. Somebody to remind them of the gospel and the hope of heaven. That's most of the work. So don't worry about what you need to say. Don't worry about saying just the right thing. Just sit with them. Weep with those that weep. Rejoice with those that rejoice. And you should note that there's a lot of people that have been hurt or are hurting that are here this morning. And so let's love them as Jesus did. And I realize that that's scary for some of you. And that's hard. But guys, it's worth it. It's worth it. Don't conform to the patterns of the world's love for the worthy. Be conformed to the love of Christ and be willing to love the unworthy because that's how God loved you. And He loved me. And when you get it wrong, I get it wrong a lot. Go back to the forgiveness of Christ and just resolve to do it right the next day. And keep going. And when we live like that and love like that, leaning on the power of the gospel, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Some of you are going, I don't have the kind of time to do this. I already have enough responsibilities as it is. Just identify one or two simple ways you can kind of go about this. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. Because relationships that look more like heaven and less like the world are beautiful and what we were made for. I'll give you one final example of this. Uh, it's simple. See, this is, I think this is just a simple example of how simple it can be. So most of you know that I coach my son's baseball teams. 
And um, uh, there's one, there's a group of us dads that are together that, as far as I can tell, don't know Christ. And we're good friends. And they noticed, this happened just yesterday, Katie came to Judah's game. And uh, they've started to notice that all these people from our church come and watch my kids' baseball games. And this happened a couple weeks ago when Curtis was, came to the game, Curtis and Diana. And they're sitting next to Curtis and Diana, who, by the way, are not married. They're just two people in the church that came to watch my kids' games. And the people asked them, why are you here? But see, they understood that there would be a gathering of the worthy. Like, there's a reason for you to be here because your kid's in the game. And they responded, no, we don't have any kids in the game. We just came to watch our friend Judah play. And one of the guys noticed that yesterday. He said to me at the end of the game, I notice a lot of people from your church come and watch your kids play baseball. They have no interest. I mean, they, it's not their kid. The games are kind of boring. <laughs> but guess what? Guess what? Those simple things, they get no, the people that show up to my kid's game, they get little to no benefit because they can be boring. But listen, people notice that stuff. That's just a simple, really easy way to love people. Show up to a baseball game. Make a cake. Make a phone call. Send a text. Love others in the love of Christ. It is better to give than to receive. And it is hard, but it is worth it. So let's ask Him for help. Father, we love You. And we thank You that You first loved us. Because that's what we needed. We didn't first love You. And oftentimes we still don't sometimes. But we so thank you, so thankful, God, that you are a God of forgiveness. That you define what love is for us. That your son, Jesus, is so clear about what worldly love is and what heavenly love is like. And God, we confess that many of us are scared. Many of us find this difficult. But Lord, I I pray that more would say, I'm going to resolve to just try. But I'm not going to try in my own power. I'm going to try by the power of God in Christ Jesus, by His Holy Spirit. And God, fan the flame of this little church all the more, that you might be glorified through the relationships that happen in this church. May we be a spectacle for the greatness of your glory. And we thank you most of all for Christ, who makes all of this possible. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.